0: Hi, it's Nahani Rouse, here with another episode of Can We Talk? First, a word from our sponsor, Joy Stember Metal Arts Studio, 100% women owned and staffed. Award winning metal artist Joy Stember specializes in handmade pewter Judaica for a new generation, mezuzot, kiddush cups, candle holders, and more. Joy's work is inspired by the clean lines and repeating patterns in urban landscapes and architecture. Celebrate life's important moments with an exquisite treasure. See the entire collection at joystember.com and use the code JWA15 for a 15% discount. Now on to the show. Welcome back to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive, where gender, history, and Jewish culture meet.
1: I... Will generally tell people who try to call me Rabbitson that I will not answer to that word. Being known as Mrs. Rabbi is uh, demeaning to my own training and professional identity. So I don't, I don't like it. It just feels a little patriarchal.
2: I think of myself very often as the Rabbitson because I love this community. You know, in a way, I'm continuing the legacy that my my husband left. And that's, I think that it's a wonderful thing to have that opportunity to feel that you're part of the community in a very deep way. And I think that's what a Rebetzin means to me.
0: In this episode of Can We Talk? We're looking at the changing role of the Rebbitzin, the rabbi's wife. Women have been rabbis in America for just over half a century, a milestone we marked last year. But for as long as there have been rabbis, there have been rabbi's wives. And they have often served as leaders, too. Later in the episode, we'll speak with the spouses of three rabbis. But first, we'll talk with Shuli Rubin Schwartz. She's the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, a historian, and the author of The Rabbi's Wife, The Rebetzin in American Jewish Life. She's also the daughter of a rabbi, the mother of a rabbi, and was a rebbitzin herself from 1979 until her husband's death in 2004. Before Shuli wrote her book about Rebitzins, she had been grappling with a question What did talented, dedicated Jewish women do in the era before they could become rabbis? Of course, the
3: answer was right there in front of me since I was the daughter of a rabbi and therefore daughter of a rebbitsin, and it uh, became very clear to me that in the era before women could become rabbis many women who felt a sense of calling to serve the Jewish people who were Jewishly learned who were capable and interested and uh, wanted to share their love of Jewish life and Jewish learning with others that many of them married what they wanted to be. The way I see it Marrying a rabbi, and here I'm talking, I would say, especially rabbis who had big public roles, heads of institutions, but also uh, congregational rabbis, gave women a platform, gave them a status, and gave them an instant audience for their talents. Often that audience was focus on the women of the congregation, but not always. Can you share an example? Well, sure, I think I will start with the one closest to home. Uh, As chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary, I think a lot about the role that not only my predecessor, Solomon Schechter, played, but his wife, Matilda Schechter, played in um, creating this wonderful institution. Part of his success can tr- attributed to the community that he and his wife created at the Jewish Theological Seminary. Their home was open every Shabbat. Students came and spent time there, and that created the religious atmosphere that was essential for rabbinic training. Matilda Schechter was responsible for the JTS sukkah. Also, she, like many other rabbis' wives, created a women's auxiliary. And that organization became a catalyst for Jewish women to become more educated Jewishly so that they could create a Jewish home, rear Jewish children. So through that kind of gendered lens, Um, she was nevertheless able to greatly increase the knowledge level and capabilities of American Jewish women.
0: And, I mean, that platform could also come with some um, societal expectations. I mean, you write about in the book that, like, women could be, um, you know, they could be admired for you know, having certain roles and also criticized for maybe getting out too far in front of their husband. Yes, it was it
3: was a difficult balancing act. I would say women um, for much of this time were most successful when their strengths conform to gender norms. If you create an exemplary home and you entertain and you have children and you're a model mother whose children are exemplary and you teach the women in the sisterhood, then you can achieve a great deal and many women achieved even beyond that as well.
2: My name is Sylvia Moshiewicz-Orenstein. My husband graduated from the uh, Jewish Theological Seminary in 1960. So I've been a Rebison since 1960. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed away um, in 2013. Um, So I've been a Rebison a long time. And I learned how to be a Rebison, actually, because my mother was a Rebison. Both my grandmothers, whom I knew were Rebetzins. Actually, in my family, we have seven seventh generation of rabbis whom we know about. My daughter is the seventh generation, but she's not a Rebetzin. She's a rabbi. And her husband is the Rebetzin. Now, my mother was absolutely the best Rebetzin that ever lived. She was magnificent. She really cared for the community in, in, in an extraordinary way. My mother was a mathematician. But she took her, her job, as it were, as a Robinson very seriously. There was one gentleman who had multiple sclerosis and was bedridden, and she read to him every week. She went to his house and read to him. and But she did that for so many people. The expectation when I became a Rebittson, was that I was gonna be part of the congregation. I was gonna, you know, have the scholars in residence for the weekend and I would feed and I was gonna have uh, you know, I was gonna give the book reviews and and things like that. And I would teach something. The second uh, day of Rosh Hashanah, we had open house. And I would bake cookies and cake all through August, you know, in the evenings. We had hundreds of people come through the house. I felt that I had a real obligation, and a, an obligation that I really treasured to the synagogue. I never missed a um, a sisterhood meeting or something like that. I didn't want to miss them. I mean, I, I became a, a lawyer, and the congregation was very supportive of all that. I was almost uh, hesitant to tell them that I was in law school, And I got this incredible feedback from the women in the congregation. I really never considered that I might be a rabbi. And that was not within the realm of possibility as far as I was concerned. Um, there were very strong gendered uh, positions. My husband was the rabbi; I was the rebbetzin. My father was the rabbi; my mother was the rebbetzin. My grandfathers were the rabbis; my grandmothers were the rebbetzin. Although I must say that my mother, I think that she could have been, she was a great mathematician, and I do think that my my father didn't want her to have a separate career. He really didn't want it. Very unlike my husband, who encouraged my career. Maybe I was. I was lucky to be in the first wave of rabbi's wives, who could be wives and something else as well.
0: Sylvia's daughter, Deborah, was in the first wave of women who became rabbis. In 1983, Deborah joined the first class that ordained women at the Jewish Theological Seminary of the Conservative Movement. By that time, the Reform and Reconstructionist movements were already ordaining women. As more and more women became rabbis in the 1970s and 80s, the role of the Rebetzin began to change. What happens to the role of Rebetzin during that time and how people see that role? It's a fascinating story.
3: In the 70s, as the impact of second-wave feminism begins to be felt in the Jewish community, women who loved being Rebitons who loved the role, who felt successful in the role, uh, often felt um, devalued. They felt they needed to justify why they weren't going out and seeking careers of their own. Other women felt liberated. They never liked the role, so they were happy that uh, society was saying, yeah, you don't need to do this. They they only hired your husband, they didn't hire you. Whereas definitely in the earlier periods, and why I titled one of the chapters of my book, Two for the Price of One, that was definitely the expectation.
0: Expectations have changed as women have become rabbis. Today, the vast majority of Orthodox seminaries still do not ordain women but some Orthodox communities are professionalizing the role of Rebetzin.
3: This is very important in the uh, Chabad world, right? We know that the couples that go out there in the world to um, set up uh, Jewish communities on college campuses, around the country, around the world, they have annual conventions, separate conventions for the men and for the women. And Yeshiva University now, since that is a part of Orthodoxy that has leaned in on not ordaining women, they have greatly enhanced the training of the rabbi's wives and, again, bring them together annually. There are wives in the Orthodox world who get paid for some of what they do. And there are some synagogues that give a salary to both. Um, the couples that, young couples that go on, out to college campuses from the Orthodox Union, both of them draw a salary. So it has changed, but in a different way.
0: Hmm. Can we go back and talk about the word Rebetzin, Um, the origin and how its connotations have evolved?
3: Sure. So we know "rabbitsin" is a Yiddish word. So um, you know it has a long history in uh, in Jewish culture. Um, and even before there was a term, there are certainly stories in the Talmud of the wives of the rabbis. Women were often revered for their piety, for their learning. Many. Rabbi's wives were also rabbi's daughters, so they often would be learned in their own right. Um, and then there are also jokes, rabbi's wives who were the butts of jokes and um, disparaging remarks. So it kind of was a double-edged sword, I would say.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems like such a... Um... You know, you talk about them being revered and learned. And I mean, it seems like almost getting so close to something and yet not being able to touch it.
3: In the era before women could become rabbis and in the era before, as we would say, women's consciousness was raised or societal consciousness was raised, I don't think that rabbis' wives felt deprived because they were close to the power that their husbands had, but couldn't have it in their own right. I think most of them felt lucky that they got way closer than most of their peers because they were part of a two-person career and they could have
0: tremendous impact on their own. Do you identify with the term "rabbitsin" yourself? That's a great
3: question. Um, in my era, most of the rabbis' wives shunned the term "rabbitsin." So this would have been in the in the eighties, in the eighties and nineties.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: By the eighties and nineties, the term "rabbitsin" really highlighted the fact that. It was a derivative career. Women of my generation certainly didn't want to feel that we were involved in something where anything we did was just simply reflected glory of our husband's career. I felt very comfortable being involved in the synagogue because I cared about participating in synagogue life and having the kind of impact that I could have because I was married to the rabbi. So I didn't embrace the term Rebbitzin as my identity, but I certainly didn't um, shun it as some of my peers did.
1: My name is Melissa Werbo, and I live in Washington, D.C. I am a Jewish educator and um, happen to be married to a rabbi and the parent of three kids. I have one friend who I allow to call me Rabbitson, and I know he does it with love and a little bit of teasing, but I have a really negative reaction to that word. Um, If I was married to somebody with any other job, I wouldn't be known by that person's job title Um, the way i like to say it is that i have no role as the spouse of a rabbi but i have every role as an active member of a congregation and every time that he was job searching when we would go for um, interview weekends i would say he's looking for a job but i'm looking to join your shul and, um I have been blessed to be in congregations where the spouses of the rabbis who came before were really good at establishing boundaries and making clear that the synagogue was paying their husband's salary in all of those cases, uh, they were they were male rabbis, their husband's salary and not their salary and I think that really made a space for me to pick and choose the things that I that I want to do and the things that I don't want to do. Some of the job of being a, a rabbi is to be a cheerleader for Jewish life. And so the way that the rabbi's own family participates in Jewish life is an exemplar for um, how to kind of live the best, most engaged Jewish life and so people want to see how you're how you're doing that um, we for most of uh, my husband's career we've had a relatively young family um, and so they are the little kids who are running up on the bima and and calling Abba across the room and that's adorable and I think it also, creates in people this sense of connection and wanting to be close to to that. We think it's really important to stop by every table and say hello and ask people questions. And you know I try and remember when somebody tells me that they're going to visit their grandchildren, when I see them again to ask them how the visit was or or you know how the graduation went. And um, I think that makes people feel really close to you. Um, whether they actually know you very well or not. There are communities I've been a part of where, uh, you know, I would bump into people in the grocery store and I would notice that they were looking to see what was in my shopping cart um, as if there would, I don't know what they were hoping to find. I buy tampons and, you know, toothpaste just like everybody else. I'm not sure what they thought was going to be in there. I think there are times where it is really hard to live your life so publicly. I struggled with infertility and lost eight pregnancies um, in the course of having my three children. Most of those were later. And so everybody knew I was pregnant. And um, it was just so much harder uh, when you have people coming up to you at kiddish, multiple people saying, how are you feeling? And I didn't know if they had heard I was pregnant or they had heard that I had lost a pregnancy. And so um, there's a certain um, giving up of of privacy that, that is hard. And then the other thing that is complicated is that my friends are also my husband's boss because there are 325 members of his congregation and all of those congregants vote on his contract. You know, I can't complain about him when he's being annoying um, because I, you know, I'm talking to someone who's gonna, I don't know, um, make decisions about his career. And so that is also like a, I think that's a weird uh, situation that doesn't happen in other kinds of of marriages and professions.
0: Does the Rebbiton have a role today or is there a role for the spouse of a rabbi today
3: i think the role for the spouse of a rabbi in some ways is the role of any spouse who loves their spouse (laughs) but i think that there is an additional dimension we know that judaism is not just stuff that you teach Judaism is a way of life, it encompasses so many aspects and uh, we see the importance of uh, the roles that rabbis wives play because we see that today. We see it in, in Chabad, we see it on college campuses, there is no question that the rabbinate benefits from it being a two-person career. When there is a couple involved, it feels more like home. Hmm. Only nowadays it can be a same-sex couple. It can be a couple where a, a woman is a clergy and the spouse is a man.
4: My name is Yoni Friedman. Um, for the past 10 years, I've lived in Shepherd Park, uh, a community in northwest Washington DC. My wife, uh, Maharat Ruth Belinsky Friedman, has served as a member of the clergy um, at our local shul, Ohif Shalom. For the first eight or eight and a half years, uh, worked together with Rabbi Shmuel Hertzfeld, who was the senior clergy, and for the past uh, year and a bit as the sole clergy. I've done different things in the community, um, but it was always, you know, because I wanted to, um, not because the community had um, expectations uh, that that I would do it. When we first moved here, we did not yet have children. Um, And I also happened to be, you know, I grew up Orthodox and uh, an experienced um, laner or, you know, someone who reads uh, can lean from the Torah. And I'm also, you know, a regular minion goer. So certainly starting out, what was most useful that I could do for the community was to attend daily minion um, and to lane, and also to contribute to the, the Torah study culture of the shul. Um, once we had kids, I think I was much less engaged. Um, my role was really watching, you know, looking after the kids on Shabbos and holidays and during shul programs so that Ruth could do her, could do her job. Um, you know, Ruth was the first graduate of Yeshivat Maharat.
0: Yeshivat Maharat is an Orthodox women's rabbinical school in New York that began ordaining women in 2013. You
4: know, there are other women, not many, but some other Orthodox women who had clergy roles before her. Um, but it was a, its basically, it was a pretty new role when we came here. Um, and she was, you know, the first Orthodox woman um, from Maharat hired uh, at a shul. And so, you know, we, we kind of had some fun with it. And so, playing on Rebetzin, um, I took on the title of Rabbitzman, and it's also our, our license plate is R-B-T-Z-M-A-N, Rabbitsman. Um So definitely get shout outs driving around town when people see the Rabbitsman license plate. Um, so within Shul, it certainly is, it's definitely a big part of my identity. I mean, one challenge certainly is, you know, from, from um, you know, I will go to Minion as I'm needed. Um, but our default is, and the default for years, is that Ruth goes to Shul. So from my own kind of personal religious perspective, um, you know, my whole life I went to Minyan. Um, and it's been, you know, for, certainly since we had kids and someone had to stay home. So for the past seven and a half years, you know, there's, it's religiously it's been, it, it, at times has been challenging since I'm not engaging in Shul, uh, you know, ritualistically the way that I always had and, you know, kind of assumed I would. I mean, one challenge certainly is I think being a member of the clergy uh, or congregational rabbi is challenging. And so being the spouse and watching your spouse have to deal with all that is challenging. Um, for most of my time, being the spouse has been really wonderful. A couple of years, I like chaired the dessert committee for the, for the gala, and I had a blast doing it. I love baking, and it was a lot of fun. There was always kind of like this meta-layer to it also, because um, things like running desserts for the gala is the kind of thing that you would expect a Rebbitson to do, and so I'd always kind of do it like on one level because I enjoyed it, but on a on a sort of other level because I enjoy the idea of doing it, you know, the idea of playing that role. Um, you know, like, yes, I watch the kids, and so I'm not in shul, right? And that's not the traditional role of a man, Um but I never, I've never questioned that, oh, therefore I'm less of an Orthodox Jew or less of a man or not fulfilling my, my responsibilities. Some Orthodox Jews might say that I have not fulfilled my responsibilities as an Orthodox Jew for much of these past 10 years. But I've never felt personally deficient and I've always been um, just over the moon about putting her in a situation to do something that very few women have gone to do.
0: Thank you for listening to Can We Talk, the podcast of the Jewish Women's Archive. In this episode, we heard from Shuli Rubin Schwartz, Chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary and author of The Rabbi's Wife, The Rebetzin in American Jewish Life. We also heard from Sylvia Moshewitz orenstein Melissa Werbo, and Yoni Friedman. Special thanks to Aviva Orenstein for help with this episode. Our team includes Jen Richler and Judith Rosenbaum. Our theme music is by Girls in Trouble. You also heard Tiny Putty from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find Can We Talk online at jwa.org slash canwetalk or wherever you get your podcasts. Please help us spread the word by sharing this and your other favorite episodes with your friends. I'm Nahani Rouse. Until next time.